<clears throat> the story is told about a farmer and his wife who went to town together. It seems that the man had an appointment with the doctor for a checkup and his wife wanted to be there. Isn't that always the case? They just don't trust you to, to understand what the doctor says and bring it back home. Uh, she wanted to go and be with him, and so after the examination, uh, the doctor sent the man out and had his wife come into the office. And he handed her a piece of paper saying, here are the things that you need to do for your husband or he will surely die. Fear gripped her heart as she silently read down the list. It said, number one, fix your husband a hot breakfast every morning before he goes out to milk the cows at five o'clock. Two, surprise him with a homemade pie or cake every day at lunchtime. Number three, after lunch, insist that he lie down in the hammock and take a nap. Bring him the newspaper and a glass of fresh-squeezed lemonade. Number four, always let him hold the remote <laughs> and watch the ball game whenever he wants to. Bring him a bowl of ice cream and homemade cookies while he watches. On the way home, the farmer looked over at his wife and asked her, well, honey, what did the doctor say? How am I doing? She looked at him and said, he says you're surely going to die. <laughs> you're surely going to die. <laughs> now that man is in a deep pit. And it uh, perhaps is something like the pit that David was in when he wrote Psalm 40. I invite you to open your Bible there with me as we continue this theme of the carols of the Christ, thinking today about his incarnation. Psalm 40 is a composition of David. These are his words. God had delivered David from a pit of destruction out of miry clay, says his poetic heart. God has set him free, has brought him up out of the pit. God has set his feet upon a rock and put a new song in his mouth. This hymn, or this psalm, praises God for a past rescue, but it also leads to yet another prayer of David for deliverance that was needed at the moment it was written. When, as he says in verse 11, there were evils beyond number that surrounded him. And in verse 14, he says, there were some even at that moment that sought to destroy his life. And so here is a psalm of praise to God for past deliverance and petition to God for yet another need for intervention. And placed into this setting is a lyrical jewel of exquisite devotion to God. These are verses 6 through 8, our text for today. Sacrifice and meal offering thou hast not desired. My ears thou hast opened. Burnt offering and sin offering thou hast not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. 
This was an expression of David as he told of his heart's devotion to the Lord. I delight to do your will, O God. Now the Holy Spirit picks up these verses and transports them into the New Testament and puts them in a certain context. And I invite you to look there with me now in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. The author here is telling us how the sacrifices of old in the Old Testament were not able to take away sin. They atoned for it. They covered it, but they didn't take it away. And he acknowledges in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, now the question, who is he? And if you look back through the context here, you come back to Christ. When Christ comes into the world, he talks about that in verse 26, the middle of the verse. He says, Now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is Christ. And so in verse 5 he says, Now when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. The text that we've read clearly points our minds in the direction of Messiah's incarnation, of his coming into the world as one of us. Now most of us here today know the familiar gospel story of Jesus' birth. We know about the coming to Bethlehem and there was no room in the inn and how they were given the place in the manger where Mary gave birth to the child. They wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. And We know about the shepherds out on the hillside getting the news that a Savior has been born. And they come to Bethlehem and they worship Him. And later the wise men come from the east and they worship Him and offer Him gifts. We know that story. But what we have here is the news behind the news that came from the heavens that night to the shepherds. As Paul Harvey likes to say, here is the rest of the story that allows us to hear the Messiah himself speak to God his Father as the miracle of Bethlehem unfolds. And what Messiah says to his Father are words of devotion to him. Christ's incarnation, his coming to earth, is a declaration of his devotion and obedience to God's plan for him. His coming to earth, his incarnation, becoming a man, is a declaration of his heart devotion to God, his obedience to the will of God. And I hope that as we study that theme out a little bit in our text this morning, that we will deeply desire to do the same. That is, to be obedient to God's plan for our lives. For there is no greater joy that we can know and that our lives would find their place in God's plan. 
and we follow that with all of our devoted hearts. There's no greater joy that we can know than that. There are two truths about the Messiah that unfold in our text. I'd like for us to look at them together. The first truth about Messiah is the truth about his person. The truth about Christ's person. We learn something about who he is in our text. First of all, he is the son of David. Who was it that wrote these words? Behold, I come. It was David. David penned those words himself. They were an expression of his poetic heart, loving God. But David wrote those words as it were, as a script for his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the son of David. Christ came from David's line, from the line of Judah, one of the twelve sons of Israel. He came in fulfillment of God's covenantal promise to David for a descendant of David's who would establish David's throne, his kingdom. And God promised that that kingdom would be forever. When the angel appeared to Mary and foretold the birth of the one that was to be conceived in her womb, he said, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And so the first truth is the truth about Christ's person, that he is the son of David who wrote these words, Lo, I come. I, as the son of David, come. Secondly, we see that he is the subject of prophecy. As he comes, he, he says, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Now the question is, what scroll of the book is in mind? Well, David undoubtedly had in mind the law, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch written by Moses, the first five books of the Bible. He says, in the law, in the, the Torah, it is written of me. Well, Messiah adopted those words as well, and how much more did they write of him? In Genesis, we see the Messiah as the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, though his heel would be bruised. We see him as the substitutionary ram who took the place of Isaac there on the mountain of sacrifice. We see him as the ladder that reaches into heaven in Jacob's dream. And Jesus is that ladder, the way to God. We see him in the prophecy that was given to Judah by Jacob as he lay dying. And that was that the scepter, the right to rule, would belong to his family. We see him in Exodus as the Passover lamb, whose blood was sprinkled on the doorpost so that the angel of death and judgment would pass over those who had the blood in place. We see him as the tabernacle and all of its furnishings that point in so many different ways to Christ. We see him in Exodus as the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled, the place of fellowship. Jesus is become our mercy seat where we meet with God. In Leviticus, we see him as the sacrifices. God there in that book outlined the various 
sacrifices the people were to bring to the altar. And Jesus, in a wonderful way, is pictured in every one of those sacrifices. We see him in Leviticus likewise in the feasts of the Lord, those annual festivals and celebrations when the people of Israel would come together and observe ritual. Jesus is pictured and his ministry is seen in those feasts of the Lord. Again, we see him in numbers as the brass serpent that was lifted up so that those who had sinned might look at the serpent and in that act of faith for God's provision be healed and delivered from judgment. Jesus is like that serpent. He was lifted up on the cross that men might look to him and be saved from judgment. We see him as Aaron's staff or his rod that burst to life in numbers. And then in Deuteronomy, we see the places of refuge established. Jesus is the ultimate refuge. In him, we have God's provision for refuge. And then in Deuteronomy, we see him as the promised prophet who would be like me, says Moses. And so he is the subject of prophecy. In the scroll of the book, it is written of him. And in hundreds of other ways throughout the whole Old Testament, we see prophecy after prophecy that point to Christ. Now the truth we see about him is that he is the son of David. He is the subject of prophecy. And third, he is the servant of the law. He says, thy law is within my heart. That can be said of no mere man. For we are born with hearts that are hardened in rebellion against God. But Jesus could say uniquely, thy law is within my heart. When he came, he came completely devoted to the righteous law of God. He was determined to obey its every requirement and was able to do so because of the righteousness of his heart. Every jot and every tittle of the law was fulfilled in Jesus and in his righteousness. He himself said in John 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. The law is the, the moral expression of Jesus said, That is what I live for, to fulfill God's, God's law. And he himself said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. The servant of the law. Now, for sinners, the law is bad news. Because if we cannot live up to its standards, it condemns us. But for the one who is Messiah, to be subject to the law and the servant of the law, gain the law's approval because he was able to fulfill it in every respect. And so we learn this about Jesus' person. But then secondly, we learn this truth about Christ's purpose. And that purpose unfolds in three thoughts that come again from our text. The first thought is this, that he came in a body. He came in a body. If you notice carefully, when we read the two texts, the book of Hebrews changes a sentence. That is, as the Holy Spirit causes the writer of that book to record from, from Psalms, 
He records from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, we call it. And the Greek translators understood the Hebrew differently. And they wrote in a body thou hast prepared for me. That's interesting, isn't it? It seems to me that the Holy Spirit who inspired Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10 can change the words if he wants to. And that's what he does. Because you see, it becomes a very poignant point for him. There are two key words in Hebrews 10, uh, in the quoting of Psalm 40 in Hebrews 10, that fit that context. One of them is will. I delight to do thy will. And the other is this, a body thou hast prepared for me. Both of those words are key to what's to communicate in Hebrews chapter 10. That's why the Holy Spirit allowed that writer to bring this in from the Septuagint that said, a body thou hast prepared for me. Now it's important to understand that this means not just a body of flesh and blood, but when it says a body you have prepared for me, it means you have prepared for me to become fully human. It doesn't mean that he just lived in a body as though it were some sort of a container that he entered into. But it means that he actually joined himself with humanity. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 2. He points to the humility of Christ, the glorious, eternal Son of God who laid aside the outward demonstration of his glory and was willing to enter a human body and join himself to human nature. Think of this. Think of the wonder of it, that the eternal God himself, in his immensity, in his glorious attributes, laid aside the outward view of that glory and came down, humbled himself until he was able to enter into a cell within the womb of a virgin and there grow into a baby. Paul says, you think about that demonstration of humility that this God that we worship was willing to become a servant to others. And so he writes, have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. Be willing, he says, to lay aside your rights as Jesus did so that you may serve others. He goes on to write, who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Being made in the likeness of men. Does that mean that he was like what a man is, but not a real man? It does not. Meyer has this to say regarding that term likeness of men. He says, this expression does not of itself imply Still less does it exclude or diminish the reality of the nature which Christ assumed. That is declared in the words, form of a servant. Paul justly says, 
in the likeness of men because, in fact, Christ, although certainly perfect man, was by reason of the divine nature present in him, not simply and merely man. That's why Paul puts it the way he does, the likeness of men. He's not denying that Jesus was fully man. He's simply allowing room for the fact that he was more than a mere human. More than a mere man. And then he goes on to say in, in Philippians 2, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Appearance as a man. Meyer goes on to say, Men saw in Christ a human form, bearing, language, action, mode of life, in general, the state and relations of a human being. So that in the entire mode of his appearance, he made himself known and was recognized as a man. In other words, as people looked at Jesus, even when he was born in the manger, there was no halo around his head as depicted on our Christmas cards. And as they watched him teach and do his miracles, there was nothing about him that, that, was, that looked inhuman. He didn't look like an extraterrestrial. He had the full appearance of a man because he was, although he was more than a man. As to his purpose, Messiah says as he comes into the world, he says to the Father, a body you have prepared for me. Now the second thing we see about uh, his, his purpose is this, that he came to serve God's will. He says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. We, we can't say that ourselves, can we? Because the truth be known about us, we're sinners and we don't like to do God's will. We run from God's will. We resist God's will. But Jesus was able to say, I delight to do thy will. Back in Psalm 40, that phrase that says in the New Testament, a body you've prepared for me, it says there, my ears hast thou opened. But that could mean that the Lord God gave him a heart to hear and to obey the word of God. That would certainly be true. But it may be that there's something more intended by this translation of what the Hebrew said. My ears hast thou opened. It may relate to something God provided for in the law. When a slave, having served his indentured service desired not to be set free, but to continue serving his master. It says in Exodus 21, verse 2, If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh year he shall go out as a free man without payment. And then down in verse 5 it says, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, and I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And the master shall pierce his ear, the slave's ear, with an awl. And he shall serve him permanently 
someone asked me after the first service, was this the beginning of pierced ears? I'm not even going to touch that one. But the fact is that God provided for this, and the slave that willingly continued serving his master out of devotion and love had the mark upon his body that that was the case. His ear had been punctured, and the hole in the ear was a testimony that he was a slave by choice. Now the Lord Jesus, coming into the world, says... I voluntarily give myself as a servant, O God, to your will. I delight to do your will. And so he is recorded in the Psalms as saying, My ear thou hast opened. And he became obedient even to the death of the cross. And that brings us to the third idea about his person that we see in the text he came to offer sacrifice. He came to offer sacrifice. You see, his death was not merely an expiration. It was an expiation. He came to provide through his death for the penalty that the law demanded for sin. He himself had not sinned. He kept the law of God, as we've said. But when he died, he offered himself as a sacrifice. Jesus Christ did not die as a martyr. He died as a Savior. Now, going back to Hebrews 10, this is very important to what he wants to say. Because he is showing that Christ came into the world to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's back in chapter 9, verse 26. And then in chapter 10, he explains, he says, the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, all of those sacrifices, the repetition of them in the Old Testament, could not make those who drew near to God righteous. It was unable to attain that goal. It could cover over their sins. It could not put them away. He says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, he says, there's a reminder of sins year by year. And so every year as they would bring the sacrifice to God, it would be a reminder of their sin. It was not taken away. It was simply piling up under the atoning blood of these animals. And then he says it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. You see, those sacrifices simply could not do that. But then Messiah comes into the world and he says, A body you have prepared for me. A sacrifice and offering you have not desired. Whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins. You've taken no pleasure in them. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Because God is the one who set those things up. But it's simply an acknowledgement by David in Psalm 40 and again by the writer of Hebrews that though God established that Levitical sacrificial system, 
It could not make men righteous. It could only cover up the sin until sometime in the future the sacrifice could be offered. And friends, that's why there's Christmas. It is so that God himself in the Son could come into this world in a human body and fulfill the law of God voluntarily and then lay down his life as the sacrifice that would take away sin. And so Jesus, the Messiah, served the promises of God, served the purpose of God. He served the purpose of God not out of duty, but out of devotion to the Lord. And folks, isn't that what our calling is? Didn't he leave you and me an example in this sense? Like Messiah, we should serve God out of heart devotion and not out of harsh duty. How do you see your Christian experience? How do you see the Christian life? Is it, is it something heavy and it's a drudgery and it's an obligation to you? Does being a Christian to you mean getting on a treadmill and running as hard as you can for as long as you can? Is it a performance? My friend, if that is your understanding of Christianity, then you need to go right back to the foundation of your understanding and, and ask yourself the question, have I understood the grace of God? Because you see, Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, has satisfied God and God's law and the judgment upon sinners that comes out of the law. He has taken away sin as an issue between God and us. So that when we trust the Savior, we receive the righteousness of Jesus in place of our sin. The sin is removed, and then all of the righteousness of the law that Jesus fulfilled is given to us as a free gift. It's a wonderful thing. Now, if we understand that, how can we possibly look at the Christian life as some harsh obligation, some duty we've got to fulfill? Should we not rather see it as just the joyful response to God who would do something like this for us? Should we not be able then to say with Messiah, Oh God, I delight to do your will. I delight to do your will. The story is told about a young man who was struggling with God's will in his life, and he didn't know if he was going to do it or if he wanted to do it. And His mother cut out some letters from construction paper and put it in his room. And it said, let God, let God. The young man looked at that and he wondered what it meant and he, he, he kind of resented her doing it and he went out the door, slammed the door and later he came back to his room still in turmoil but in the meantime when he had slammed the door the letter D had fallen off and it said, let go. Right there, is the issue with God's will in you and me. 
we don't want to let go. We want to be in control. We delight to do God's will if he tells us in advance what it is and it, it, it fits what we want. If it's convenient for us. Jesus understood God's will. It was very inconvenient. I delight to do your will. Your law is in my heart. <clears throat> a story is told about Jack who was walking too close to a cliff one day and he fell over. And as he was falling, he was just reaching for anything. He grabbed a hold of a limb that was sticking out from this cliff. And then he looked down and he saw it was a thousand feet to the bottom of the canyon where he was. And he looked up and there was no way that he could climb back up the steep wall of that cliff. And so he hung there and he began to yell, help, help, is anybody up there, help? And he yelled hour after hour until finally he heard a voice. And the voice said, Jack, Jack, can you hear me? He said, yes, I can hear you, I'm down here. I can see you, Jack. Are you all right? Yes, but, but who are you and where are you? He says, well, I'm the Lord, Jack. I'm everywhere. The Lord? You mean God? That's me. Well, God, please help me. I promise if, if you'll just get me down from here, I'll stop sinning. I'll be a really good person. I'll serve you the rest of my life. Easy on the promises, Jack. Let's just get you down from there, and then we can talk. And now here's what I want you to do. Listen carefully. Oh, I'll do anything you say, Lord. Just tell me what to do. Okay, Jack. Let go of the branch. What? I said, let go of the branch. Just trust me and let go. There was a long silence. And finally, Jack yelled, Help, help, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> Isn't that us? God, I want my options. I don't like your way. But God has us at a point, folks, where there is no other way. Now, if you're here today thinking that somehow you're going to hang on to your own righteousness or hang on to your own way of coming to God or your own religion, I want to tell you it's a thousand feet down and there's no way up. And there's one voice that's saying, trust me. And that's the voice of Jesus Christ. And I hope that you'll do that today. And let go. And give yourself to him. And receive him as your Lord and Savior. But I'm not going to let those of us who've done that off the hook. Because we're almost worse than sinners at this. Jack is us. Because we say, God, I want to do it my way. And God is saying, if you really want my will, then let go. Stop trying to control your own life. Let go and trust me. And I hope today you'll do that. And that like Messiah, you'll serve God's will out of a heart of devotion that you'll obey what God wants in your life out of a heart of joy and delight like Jesus did. Let's pray. 
with our heads bowed, if you're here today without Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to invite you to trust him today. Receive him as the Lord of your life. Believing that his sacrifice for sins was for you, that he's able to take away your guilt before God and give you his righteousness. Right where you're sitting, you can do that. Just make that decision to let go and trust him. And my Christian brother and sister, some of us are hanging on today too. And we want God to show us in advance what his will is before we say, I surrender. But God is saying, just let go and trust me. And when we do that and make that choice, then the joy of Messiah, we will know in our own hearts, we will delight to do God's will. God help us to do it. Now, Father, I pray that you will apply this to our lives and send us on our way more grateful than ever for the Messiah and his incarnation, but also with a heart response that we've let go and we're letting you, our God, have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for worshiping with us. And uh, as you go, would you greet one another? We also invite you visitors to come by the reception area in the back. We're dismissed.